0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by the one and only Abdi Grimm. Abdi, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I will say it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to actually get to talk to you. Your voice, both literally and figuratively, has been one of the more formative and more consistent throughout my whole adventure in this world of being a developer. So thank you for everything you've done over many, many, many years. Wow, thank you. Particularly, uh, even back to Ruby Rogues was probably the first place that I was introduced to you. So, podcast from a number of years ago, and then mm. Confident Ruby, the conference talk that you gave also a number of years ago is it's still one of those things that just sticks in the back of my head and is there sort of all the time for me. Cool. It's great to get to meet the people that you've watched do things on the internet. One of the better ways that the internet works out for us. Yeah. So a couple of topics that I would love to dig into today, you gave a keynote at the Keep Ruby Weird conference recently, which was an absolutely fantastic talk. And I will certainly link it up in the show notes because I think everyone should take a look. But there are a number of different topics that you covered, and I would love to poke at a few of them. Sure. Particularly, one of the things that you sort of circled around was the idea that object oriented programming is perhaps, I, I don't want to misphrase it. So can you describe your thoughts on object oriented programming and your sort of history around those ideas?
1: I think my current perspective is object-oriented programming is a really neat idea that nobody's tried yet.
0: <laughs> and I think the the topic that you particularly poked at in the talk was the idea of message passing and that being the root of the thing, but that nobody's really actually done that in any language.
1: Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, for a long time, I think I, I feel like I've understood that object-oriented programming was really supposed to be about message passing and the, the extreme late binding that you get from message passing. And even, you know, when you look at some of the stuff Alan Kay has written, Alan Kay being the person who defined object-oriented programming in the first place, when you look at some of the stuff that he wrote, he even says at one point, you know, I really regret calling it object-oriented programming because the point was really messages. Mm -hmm. It's not a widespread idea, but I'm not alone in that idea. There are some other folks out there that have been talking about the importance of the message passing point of view. But I think the thing that really stood out to me most recently and and one of the things that spawned that talk is that I'm not convinced it was e- that even message passing is the core of the idea for me, when I really dig into it uh, and when I really look at what has failed in object oriented designs, the implicit idea in a lot in what Alan Kay was talking about was in modeling processes, in actually seeing the world as a collection of processes and modeling the things that go on in the world, modeling the things, the transaction, the huh, actually, I don't want to use that word, but (laughs) modeling the things that happen between people and the work that we do as processes. And I think message passing is essential. You have to have real message passing in order to model things as processes.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm excited. You also, I I saw you backed away from the the phrase transaction or the word transaction (sighs) there, because one of the things that you highlight is the idea of the transactional fallacy, as you dub it, which I think is a, a wonderful title for This idea that our programs are timeless and synchronous and partial completion isn't a thing in the worlds of our programs. They just crash in the face of that, which I think it it firmly lines up with the experiences that I've had as a programmer. I build lots of things, they make those assumptions, and then they don't work. So it's interesting to hear you talk about all of that. And I wonder then, and I think you hinted at this a little bit in the talk, but the idea of like the Erlang process model and thing like let it crash and the idea of more resilient programs, is that a direction that you see a, a potential path forward or something that you think might be more useful?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of the people that I know who are thinking about things in the most process-oriented way are people that live in the Erlang or Elixir worlds. I don't find the, the let it crash aspect of it as, as interesting. It's important for working in that model. To me, what's what's much more interesting about it is enforcing one-way message passing. It's the fact that it gets away from the transactional fallacy that was that was sort of baked into all of object-oriented programming because return values exist. You cannot have message passing and return values, and I think that's sort of a heretical statement. But, you know, you can see it there in the stuff that Alan Kay was writing at the beginning of coming up with with OO, and you can see it in some of the early versions of Smalltalk, this idea that when we talk about message passing, like the metaphor there of sending something in the mail I mean, that's that's sort of the metaphor, the base metaphor for message passing. But, you know, if I send you something in the mail, I don't freeze at the mailbox until (laughs) I get a reply from you. Mm -hmm. And the world does not
0: stop if you don't get a reply. Yeah.
1: And the world doesn't stop. And if I send you something that you don't understand, I don't catch fire. You know, you might freak out or just throw it away, but I don't catch fire. You know, those are the, the true semantics of message passing. So any, any system where you freeze waiting for the response to come back from a message, well, that's not message passing. Uh, any system where the recipient not understanding or not being interested in the message you send causes an error on the sender's side, that's not message passing. Right. That makes sense. OO is defined in terms of message passing, so therefore it's not object oriented. <laughs>
0: Which is interesting because then it's a great idea that no one's really tried yet because I I haven't seen an implementation that really holds true to those ideas or has them deeply baked into the core of the thing.
1: Right. Except, like you said, except, you know, like Erlang and Elixir has, has that you know or by implication elixir has that kind of baked in and this is not a coincidence you know something else i talked about in the talk is that for i'm going to forget the names here but the guy who came up with the actor model was looking at some early implementations of smalltalk as one of the inspirations there and then the actor model went on to influence the the creation of erlang mm-hmm. so you see those ideas moving forwards and a lot of what happened i think is based on historical pragmatism it was just like you know okay maybe we didn't have the hardware systems needed to implement that kind of massive disconnection between process, you know, uh, separation between processes for a true message passing system.
0: I am intrigued, though, because one of the themes that we talk about a lot on this podcast is service oriented architecture and the complexities therein. And then you have these loose boundaries between systems and you need to pass information back and forth. And that just adds immensely to the complexity. So I do wonder if a system it would be, in my mind, a huge jump for me to write systems in the manner that you're describing. And I wonder, like, you know, message passing and it's asynchronous and we're sending something out there. And we're hoping that that imparts a change in the world in some other subsystem. Do you have any concerns with the inherent complexity of that or does that?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you know, the classic fa- failure of moving to like a microservice ar- architecture is the idea that, well, you know, we'll build it out of all these really small pieces that are easy to reason about. Mm-hmm. But then you have the interfaces between all the small pieces is where the problems crop up. And with current development tooling, you have much less insight into what's going on between those pieces uh, than you do when you're working with synchronous code, synchronous code calling and returning directly. And so, you know, you have to sort of figure out, you know, based on logs or something, how these asynchronous interactions led to a failure. It's a little too hand-wavy for people to say, oh, we will simplify. I'm always scared of anyone who says they're going to simplify a software system. But, you know, particularly when they say we're going to simplify the system by breaking it up into these small pieces that are very easy to reason about. All that says is that you're pushing the complexity out into an area that is harder to monitor. But, I mean, all that said, to me, I think that means that we need to get much, much better at, with our tooling and with our practices, at understanding the message flow between systems and a di- diagnosing problems based on the message flow be- between systems. Because I don't think that we can run away from this. I think that by necessity, we are moving into a world which is much more dominated by systems that pass mes- messages around, whether you know via Kafka or something else, that seems to be the way that things are going. And also, you know, again, if you're programming in something like in an actor model language or just an actor model framework, you're gonna be using some sort of messaging backbone
0: And I think that definitely makes sense what you're saying of we need to focus on the messages instead of the objects and the state and things like that. There's an interesting parallel that I'm, I'm not actually sure if it applies, but the world of Redux on the the front end. So this mm-hmm. is a JavaScript library for state management. And I see a lot of people talking about the boilerplate and the complexity and looking at a lot of different pieces. But for me, the, the piece that stands out is this immutable stream of actions or basically what happened in the world. And they are abstract statements about what happened and then they're flowing through. And that it seems almost like that's a similar idea to this message passing that that event log, again, as you mentioned Kafka there, that idea of this immutable commit log there's interesting parallels, I think, between those. and, But I agree that's that's something that we're not as good at and that we haven't had as many conversations around. And I I would love to see us collectively get better at all those things, sort of switch things around. Yeah, what around. you're
1: describing sounds a lot like an event sourcing model, which I think is is a really important thing for us to be paying attention to right now.
0: An interesting aspect of this is I... I look at Ruby and I continue to love Ruby. It's a language that has brought me much joy over the years, but I wonder how well does Ruby fit in this world? Does it have the primitives or the, the malleability to support this sort of programming model as well as perhaps other languages?
1: I mean, it's it's no worse than most other languages, but I think it's it's a mistake to think that it's, it's any better either. Ruby at least leans into dynamism a fair degree, which is a really important part of OO. I mean, the whole idea there is we don't base our sense of robustness on being able to predict exactly what is going to happen in the system. We we build it on having good conventions, and late binding things, and having good ways of handling failure. And Ruby's definitely more towards that end of the spectrum than something like Java. You know, Ruby from this perspective is not particularly object oriented any more than Java was or late model small talk was. And again, heresy. Um, <laughs> I personally am trying to come up with a set of guidelines for you know what it would look like to sort of tie our hands a bit and pretend that we are using objects in a message passing way i'm not 100% sure what that looks like yet there are some problems with doing that in a synchronous context but i'm interested in developing I think there's a solid argument for coming up with a set of guidelines where you can you can create your your objects, you can create your processes such that by following these rules, you could easily move it out into an asynchronous process. You know, you're calling it synchronously to start with, but then you could move any of these pieces out into an asynchronous process and you would not have to change them. You would they would and they would not fall over and die, basically making some conventions and some some simplifying assumptions around like what we are allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. But yeah, that's early days. Get back to me on that one.
0: <laughs> I, I certainly hope to. I, I've, I don't know if this is a fair assessment, but I, as you're saying this and as you're talking about sort of grander ideas and explorations and things, I look to the world, like the lens that I have through Twitter and the developers that I'm following, and I don't see as much of this more abstract thinking A lot of what I see is very practical, and perhaps I've narrowed my field of view down to folks that are deeply immersed in the practical considerations of bundling JavaScript or things like that. But there's sort of a breath of fresh air to you saying, like, I'm trying to come up with the way that I think this should work, and I'm not super sure yet, but I'm thinking it's in this direction. Uh, I think we need more of that, frankly. Yeah, I'd like to see more of it too. <laughs> One of the things that you do define in the talk as well is the idea of process-oriented programs. So rather than talking about it as object-oriented or, or things like that, focusing on the processes that are like sort of the workflows that are inherent to the applications that we're building... And I both like that from a code perspective, but I also like how that mirrors what I believe to be good development practices of, of being close to the end user and thinking about how people are actually going to use an application. So I, d- I did want to just touch on that briefly. And I, I guess, what mm-hmm. it, can you expand a little bit on your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of core to the talk is is the, the realization that the biggest source of refactoring headaches that I've ever come across, when when you get right down to it, they are all because a developer... Took something that was a process and they modeled it as if it was a transaction. You know, and, and there are lots of examples like of this. Um, one of the examples I use in the talk is all the problems that we have with forms. You know, you have a you have a form for somebody to fill out, and then you discover that it needs to be multi-page, and you have to rewrite a bunch of code, and then you discover that it needs to save its state somewhere better than temporary cache because users are getting annoyed that they're coming back to it and all their work is gone, and you have to rewrite based on that, and then later you find out that actually you need access to data from the unfinished forms the uncompleted forms you actually have to actually query on that and so now you have to rewrite again because you got to take that data out of like whatever ad hoc data store you stuffed it into and and actually you know make it a real part of your your data model and like this is the kind of refactor process uh, not really refactor not at all it's redesign that i've i've gone through over and over again and seen over and over again and it's based on The mistaken idea at the beginning that a form is a transaction. It's just like, in one go, you fill in a bunch of data and you submit it. And a form is not a transaction, a form is a process, but you know, going through a form is a process that somebody does and it may involve pausing, it may involve getting clarification on the question or going finding more information. Some forms may involve some amount of interplay between the system and you, you know, where like you fill it out partly and then it presents new options based on what you fill out. Forms are processes. You know and there are a lot of other things that we fail to model as processes and it bites us like uh, you know, making a request to a service making an http request to a service that is not a transaction and trying to model it as a transaction is leaky you know it's something that might have to be retried it's something that might be partially fulfilled and then you have to make some more requests to complete it it might have a streaming response you know there are so many aspects of that which don't fit the transaction model and like there are lots of easy refactorings and easy redesigns out there in software, you know, oh, this object clearly has two objects living in it. You know, we can extract that out really easily. But where it gets hard is where somebody has modeled a process as a transaction.
0: Right. Like I said, that mirrors a lot of the experiences I've had. And again, I'm I'm not entirely clear on the direct path to the solutions, but I love like naming the problems is the first step and then sort of working through and getting to the better systems and the better tools and, and practices and whatnot. And again, I think the talk was fantastic for highlighting that and talking at a higher level. And similarly, one of the the aspects that stands out in the talk is the more personal aspects. You were very um, open about aspects of your life and sort of the arc that you've gone through. And I think uh, the phrase that really stuck with me is programmers have a a focus on thinking of themselves as brains in jars. And our job Mm -hmm. is just to be little compute machines and get things done. But you talked about a number of ways that you're thinking about yourself more holistically and things like exercise and social networks and things like that, like real human social networks where you go and talk to a person, not like the internet ones. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I think that's something that's probably missing from a lot of the conversations. So thank you for that, for one, for just putting yourself out there and saying the things that you said. You're welcome. We're gonna take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. This episode of The Bike Shed is brought to you by OneMonth.com. Did you know that 50% of the best paying jobs call for the ability to code? OneMonth.com is the absolute best place to learn how to code in just one month. Perfect for those who are starting out. Their courses have helped over 60,000 students go from knowing zero about coding to building programs in languages like Python, Ruby, and JavaScript. OneMonth.com graduates have gone on to get jobs at prestigious startups like Airbnb, Instagram, and Spotify. OneMonth.com's courses are easy to follow with step-by-step video tutorials, instructor-led with weekly assignments reviewed by your instructor, and results driven, with each student graduating the course with a portfolio of projects to show prospective employers, as well as a certification of completion. Are you interested in taking your career to the next level? For a limited time, head to one month.com slash the bike shed to get ten percent off any coding course. Again, that's one month.com slash the bike shed to get ten percent off any coding course. Thanks to one month.com for supporting this episode of the bike shed and for supporting online education. Personally, I just joined a local uh, running club, which as I think about your profile on the internet, I'm realizing that quite possibly you had an effect on me doing that because it's a combination Mm. of running and trying to meet new humans and be social in my my close network. So uh, again, thank you for that. You're quite welcome. Well, yeah, enough of me thanking you for things. We can transition over, I guess, to what have you been up to? I know Ruby Tapas is something. You're also on another podcast. What's active in your world right now?
1: Uh, Let's see. What am I up to? Well, I mean, you know, let's get the the obvious thing out of the way. First, my day job, as always, is Ruby Tapas, which is a uh, weekly screencast series for working Ruby developers covering all kinds of topics that will hopefully make you a better programmer. And yeah, you can find that at rubytapas.com. That literally is my day job. I have to say that a lot because nobody ever believes me. They're like, "Oh, cool, you make videos on the internet, but what do you do for a living?" You know, I actually make videos on the internet for a living. So that that occupies most of my time managing that. I do a lot of management there these days. I have a small team, and I also the last year or so, I've focused on bringing other voices to that show, so it's been much less about me and what I know and a lot more about what other people know. And so I spend a lot of time, really most of my time these days, being kind of a facilitator, a producer, and just someone who can help people who have something to share, discover what it is they have to share, and then refine how they, how they express it so that we get a, a really great episode out of it. So I do a lot of that. I'm starting to speak more than I used to. There was a few years off there. I just got back uh, not too long ago from a really cool three-conference series in Australia, Sydney, Brisbane, and Melbourne and that was awesome. Sadly, that was the last place I went running. Um,
0: Are you on a hiatus now? From
1: running, not intentionally, but I, I tell you what, it is hard not to go running when you look out your hotel room window and it's a gorgeous 70 degree Fahrenheit day, blue skies, and there's a huge, a lake with a five like a, a 5k running track around it.
0: I mean, if they put a 5k around a lake, you have to run a 5k around a lake. You pretty That's, much have to. Yeah.
1: And then, you know, and then like right now, it's 35 degrees Fahrenheit and raining and And I don't want to go out there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the rain. If it were just the cold, cold's good for the rain. You just put on enough layers, but the rain, ugh. That's, yeah, that's the...
1: Yeah. Speaking more, like you mentioned, I have started podcasting again. I have joined the Greater Than Code panel of occasional hosts, and I highly recommend anyone who doesn't already listen to that show to go listen to it, not just because I'm on it now, but because it's a great show about the human side of software, the stuff that we don't always talk about. And also has some some really really just like if you look at the backlog, really fantastic history of guests. What else am I doing? I have a course I've been selling, ironically enough, on mastering the object-oriented mindset. Even though I'm telling everybody that there is no such thing as object-oriented programming in Ruby, but nonetheless we try.
0: Many of us are still spending every day trying to do that. So we uh, until we have that better thing, I think. It's nice to have things out there that help us figure out the better ways to do it.
1: Folks can find that at uh, avdi.code M-O-O-M.
0: And we'll include links for all of these things in the show notes, of course.
1: Starting to do some of my uh, ad hoc pairing slash consulting slash whatever somebody needs sessions. I call them my rubber duck sessions.
0: Those are... (laughs) Perfect title. There was a period of time where you were, if I'm remembering correctly, there was Pair With Me. Is that a site that you were maintaining or involved yeah, in? Yeah.
1: I mean, I still technically own it, but somebody else maintains it. It was just, it was my initiative to get programmers to just like ad hoc pair with each other over the internet more often.
0: The previous episode of the, I think it was the previous episode, Time Time's Weird. It might've been two episodes ago, but it was all about pair programming and the, uh, the mm-hmm. potency of that. And I'm a huge believer in it, the power and the, the ability to just Any two people, anywhere on their programming journey, somehow you put the two of them together and you will get a different outcome than you would have expected.
1: Yeah, absolutely. 100% in favor of pair programming, mob programming, anything social and programming. If you're programming, do it with other people.
0: I've actually done precious little mob programming now that I think about it. It's an interesting idea. We should probably do that on a ThoughtBot Friday. Just get everyone in a conference room and make something
1: well That's and fun. i can i can i can probably recommend you someone to talk to on the podcast about that too So,
0: <laughs> excellent well, i look forward to that what about code with all of the things you listed i would not be surprised if there's not much new different code that you're fitting in but any explorations in the code world any code that you're writing or want to write or new oh
1: that up? that brings me to another thing fun thing that i did recently uh that people can check out for one thing i've been doing more with javascript recently and one thing i did is last week i recorded a series of just like really informal pair programming sessions just like care. We're two relatively experienced programmers who have stayed mostly oblivious to advances in JavaScript and front-end development for the last several years. And so this was us being sort of experienced, but also sort of total noobs as we stumble through starting a new application using modern JavaScript and like that ecosystem. And that was a lot of fun. We, we used Glitch. Mm. As the hosting, which is' just such a cool thing, you can just go there and remix somebody else's project like you can just clone off somebody else's project but it's it's fantastic for newbies because unlike you know unlike github, like it's the whole thing it's it's hosting and everything like everything is live. you edit the code and the change is immediately there, like really live like you edit the code and let it sit there for a second and in your your frame that has you know that has the site in it, you see the change you know you still have like files. But you don't have to, you know, for newbies, they don't have to understand version control first. They don't have to understand how to find hosting. They don't have to understand GitHub. They can just, like, start working on a a template project and start making it at their own. And it's immediately up there on the Internet for people to play with. And, like, this, I I just love that kind of enabling technology. And so we had a lot of fun with that. Um, I'm also working on a course with Betsy Habel of Cohere that's going to be about uh, asynchronous JavaScript and doing that better. Where I, again, play the uneducated noob, and uh, and she's really the brains of that operation.
0: I I will say, I think there's such value in getting to watch someone who has as much experience as you do come into something that's new for them. Getting to watch how an experienced developer that is then out of their depth... Try and refine that depth and bring to bear all the experience that you do have in the different languages that you've worked with. Yeah, I think sharing that is wonderful. It's something that, like, there's a theme around learning in public that I think is absolutely wonderful, where it's folks sharing more and being a little more open to sharing things that are less polished and less perfect. Mm -hmm. I definitely have a tendency personally to over edit and to overthink. And I actually, I love the podcast format because I sit here and I talk for some amount of time and then it will turn into an episode and I don't get to necessarily over edit myself. Whereas like I have very few blog posts on the ThoughtBot blog, despite having been here for almost six years. There's no Mm -hmm. real reason for that. I actually set a goal for myself for Q1 to actually write a blog post Hmm. because it seems like a thing that I should be able to achieve. And yet here we are. But so I I love that idea of uh, just getting out there and sharing what does it look like to start a new thing and what are the questions that you're asking? And like how do you try and then take those next steps? I'm also really intrigued by Glitch. I've heard a number of very good things about it, but I've never actually played with it myself. So that sounds really cool.
1: Oh, and, and for for people that are that are wondering like how you go from that to quote regular development, you can actually just export to, to GitHub. So that's that's pretty awesome. Oh if if people want to see those the pairing sessions with me and Jessica Kerr, uh, just go to her look up her YouTube channel. I think it's uh, Jesse Tronica.
0: Okay. And I'll YouTube. include that in the, the show notes. Yeah, warning
1: we drank and cursed a lot.
0: <laughs> so it was honest, is what you're saying. Yes. How how did you find your experiences diving into the, the waters of JavaScript? Fine. I don't know. It's a leading question, obviously.
1: You know, dynamic languages are all mostly
0: similar. Yeah. And uh, JavaScript really has come an immense distance in the past few years, whereas like uh, Ruby has been much more stable, much more consistent. The thing that Ruby was five years ago when i come into work each day it's it's pretty much that thing where javascript yeah. is unrecognizable in comparison mm-hmm. to what it was then
1: yeah and i'm actually actually if you have any recommendations i'm really looking for more material about javascript that's specifically aimed at like people that already code and are looking to understand like the state of the art in javascript
0: the state of the art moves so quickly that that's a hard <laughs> thing to pin down i mean I, one of the things that i've been really interested by is typescript and that additional mm-hmm. layer on top oh, of oh yes
1: actually we did some of that Jessica really, really likes TypeScript, and so we kind of moved over to that for some of the stuff.
0: I've uh, personally been on sort of an adventure trying out each of the different strongly typed compiled to JavaScript situations. Mm. So TypeScript and Elm and then there's Reason and Flow and countless other peer script. I think. There's mm-hmm. an impressive number of them and TypeScript seems to be the one that's hitting the right optimization point. It's a little mm-hmm. more forgiving, frankly, I think, than I would like. Yeah. I'd like to like dial up. They do actually have settings so that you can dial up the strictness but I do think Microsoft is doing an absolutely unbelievable job with a lot of their open source right now. It's, uh, mm-hmm. again, in the like five years ago things that i didn't think i would say microsoft really nice work i love that editor yeah. you're making and that language you're making and that open source platform that you have and but yeah typescript has been really interesting for me
1: it's really cool when you switch your project over to typescript and you plug the right stuff into vs code and you know suddenly you have all of this immediately accessible documentation for everything that you're doing and you know libraries that you were already using in javascript but now you have this immediate, what are the arguments for this method and what do they mean?
0: And that ability to refactor, that's the dream and that's the experience that I've had in some additionally strongly typed languages. Like Elm, you can just go in anywhere, pick any data structure and just hack at it and change it in Mm -hmm. any way and then just chase that down. TypeScript, again, depending on how strictly you've built the rest of the system, potentially has that ability. The ability Mm -hmm. where the compiler really can just hold your hand and walk you to each of the places that you need to update something. But again, it's sort of only as good as the strictness and how constrained the developers keep themselves because you can just throw in any anywhere in there and suddenly it's a very different world (laughs)
1: like casting to void and see
0: (laughs) yep but yeah i think that's that's one thing that stands out i've personally been playing around a lot with graphql which is an adjacent technology Hmm. but that's the direction that i sort of see the front end ecosystem moving in and if anything my dream with that and what i've been trying to push on with the graphql world is let's not try and make the front end more complex let's actually try and Mm. push some of that back to the server and say we were always kind of doing this anyway when we have seven different serialization formats for the user object based on which screen it's rendering to maybe we needed this anyway and so the idea of being Mm. able to push that logic back and even little things like mapping over a list and renaming arguments and things like that the less of that that i have to do in JavaScript on a remote computer with reduced resources, with reduced visibility and error reporting and all of those things. Like, let's pull that back to my server that I have way more control over. Those are sort of my lenses, but JavaScript itself, I feel like I've just been sort of following along over the past five years. So I don't know as much of the like, what would I recommend right now as the best resource for, I know how to program. I want to see what's current JavaScript, but I will certainly let you know if I come up with anything else. Cool. What are you excited about? What's interesting to you in the world of programming? What are you seeing people talk about that you're like, oh, I want to chase that down more?
1: You know, technology-wise, there's always a zillion things that I want to play with. It's less about particular technologies. It's more of a discipline. I've started reading and watching stuff from the nascent resilience engineering community. And there's some really, really interesting stuff. I watched a couple of really good resilience talks at YAL, which was that conference series in Australia.
0: Uh, I'm actually not familiar with the, with the term there. Can you describe what that world is and what that means? Resilience engineering, I mean, I'm not sure if
1: I'm qualified to define it yet, but I mean, the way I understand it, it's basically the acknowledgement that successful systems are complex systems. They are complex sociotechnical systems that we are not going to make simpler. Like The complexity is a function of their success. And their success is a function of their complexity. And we're not going to prevent failures. So what are the practices that we need to um, live with systems that are constantly breaking in some area? One of the kind of formative exercises in resilience engineering, one of the the things that they talk about a lot, was the development of Chaos Monkey and and then the whole chaos menagerie at Netflix. Where they kind of turn the conventional wisdom on its head of like, let's do everything possible to prevent failure. And they said, let's start randomly triggering failures in production so that we can learn about our capability of dealing with them. And they've kind of spread that out to all kinds of related practices of just breaking stuff deliberately in production to make sure that you know how to cope. One of the sort of resilience engineering related realizations that I've had recently started with a friend of mine saying, oh, the wireless headset that I like to use for this particular kind of scenario, I wind up never using it because a month goes between uses. And so then it's not charged. You know, and I kind of ran with that. And I was thinking, you know, yeah, like that's that's a truism, isn't it? Like if you need something, you only need something occasionally. There's always something that's gone wrong with it. In the meantime, you know, the fire extinguisher that you keep under the sink has had water dripping on it and it's rusted shut. You know, the the food that you save for a rainy day, somebody went through it and ate it or the mice got to it or something. And that that extends to like your backups. You know, if you haven't restored from your backups recently, then your backups aren't working you know practically guarantee you they're not working your excess capacity that that you know is there if you've never actually had to use it it's actually something that's going to break when you try to use that excess capacity like any kind of capacity you have for handling failure any kind of backup plans that you have that that aren't actually regularly being used they're not going to work when you need them and it's that kind of consideration that we're talking about with resilience engineering
0: and is core to that the idea of just exercising the like chaos monkey going in and actually interrupting networks and and breaking and like taking down a subsystem and things like that? Is that core to it or is there more aspects to it than that? I think there's
1: probably a lot to it. I, I don't I probably don't know all of the different approaches to this, but like you know another thing is like if you're making backups, some part of your process needs to be restoring from those backups and using that data. So like maybe you know in development, Take that data anonymize it and use it for your development or staging or something like that. But something needs to be regularly using that data or you might as well consider it not existing.
0: Right. So that's closing the loop on making sure that backup process is working and then having that feed forward into another system. Yeah, that's a. I've I've started to hear that theme repeated. Like the best architectures emphasize quick recovery over avoiding failure at all, and things like that. Those are themes that I'm starting to hear, and I'm, I'm definitely excited and interested. And now that you've given me a phrase that I can Google for, I can I can dig deeper into this world. So yeah. that's that's excellent.
1: Another powerful idea from that world is the realization that asking why about failures is often counterproductive. Like you will find a rationalization if you keep asking why, why did this happen, why did this happen? You will find a rationalization for it. You will find a scapegoat, but it's not necessarily going to be a, a useful r- realization for the next time because systems are complicated.
0: So what's the question we should ask instead? And again, I know I'm pushing you into the area. That this is less your, your thing, but I'm intrigued. So,
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that people are saying is that how is actually a much more useful question than why. How did this happen? Mm-hmm. Not in the blamey sense, but like let's examine all of the context and all of the things that went into this happening. you know, Why was it possible for this to happen? What were the forces that pushed us into making the decisions that enabled this to happen? Like the flip side of that though, is that sometimes it isn't about figuring out the, the root cause. There often is no real root cause. I mean, that's, root cause is a problematic I- idea. And sometimes it's not about finding the root cause. Sometimes it's about saying, how are we going to manage the next failure?
0: How will we have uh, more aggressive alerting, more aggressive monitoring, things like that. That's one of the things that I've seen in a number of systems is just liberally sprinkling stats or or monitoring at that level of just like what are regular throughputs of the system. And we may not know that something's going wrong because we may have a silent error case, which those are always sad. But if we see a drop in these metrics, then can we use that as a way to like... How did we not know about this? Seems like a good question to ask in terms of the like, don't ask the why did this happen? But the how did we not recognize it sooner is one where I've seen failures sit around for a few days before people realize like we've been dropping data silently. And those are the terrifying, like the idea of data loss is one of the saddest things in my worldview. And especially when it hits the bottom line or even not, data is important and we got to hold on to it. So. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. That's now an interesting topic. Or I guess I didn't need another thing on my list of things to look at. But, <laughs> but it's a good one. And You're welcome. The, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the idea with the podcast is we expose people to new ideas. And I get to be that person from time to time. So I win. Well, with that, I think we have covered enough and varied things. Avdi, I want to thank you so much again for taking the time. Hey, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Where would be the best place for people to track you down on the internet?
1: Well, anybody's welcome to follow me on Twitter. I'm Avdi, A-V-D-I on Twitter and you will see a lot of flower pictures, but occasionally also things about what I'm up to. And you're welcome to find me at rubytapas.com, avdi.codes, I really need a good place for people to go and sign up to my mailing lists, because I've got mailing lists. But I guess I'll just try and make sure that they're actually easy signups on avdi.codes.
0: Sounds great, well we will have links to all of that and everything else that we have mentioned in this show. And again, thank you so much, Avdi. Thank you. Show notes for this episode can be found at Bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at, at underscore Bikeshed, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter, or you can email us at hosts at Bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.